one day last week after I'd had a big day the day, be- the day before and I was priming myself to get into work the next morning but was just feeling tired and flat and despondent and realised I just needed to have a, a few hours break from my desk and so I walked to Chiswick just around the water and meditated on Psalm 131. Um, the psalm it says, But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. So not a newborn desperate for milk, but more like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord. We've just been singing about our, our broken soul's delight in that song. And here too in this psalm, that uh, it tells us hope in the Lord can be found. That God will meet the Christian's longings and needs with himself. That God is our refuge, our strength. He is our vitality and our health. Where do we go otherwise in a broken world if we don't have God? This week and every week in the newspaper, you can read of Australia's many problems, and uh, one of them being our mental health challenges. This article in last weekend's or last Friday's paper is called Young Adults in Mental Turmoil. I'll just read a couple of paragraphs. Young Australians are bearing the brunt of the nation's mental health crisis, with almost half of all women aged 16 to 24 reporting a disorder in 2020 to 21. Just under 40% of the nation's 16 to 24-year-olds, 1.1 million people had a mental health condition in 2021, far higher than the overall proportion of 21% for all adults a landmark new report by the Australian Bureau of Statistics reveals. It goes on to say, experts say the isolating impact of the pandemic, though some of these things were occurring before the pandemic, experts say the isolating impact of the pandemic, the dark side of social media, and concerns about the state of the planet likely sit behind the disturbing data. Uh, Today, as we baptise two infants... Uh, we're baptising them really into also a troubled world, aren't we? They're entering a world with difficulty and many would consider hopeless. Or is it really true that deep hope, this hope I was finding in the Psalms, and a great reason to live that I find in the Psalms and we've been singing about today, can truly be found in the God who makes himself known to us in Jesus? In other words, is this God, Jesus, Christianity thing fact or fiction? Is Jesus the real deal? Does he work? Or is he just another form of religion? Put him on the shelf with all the others. And the God of the Christians to be tolerated perhaps, but just seen as one in a crowd of many options. Sigmund Freud, the Austrian psychiatrist, would at this point chime in and deny the truth of Christianity. He says that God merely reflects our wishful thinking, a myth we create to soothe ourselves, a psychological crutch. And so in his The Future of an Illusion, he writes about religious beliefs, saying, they are illusions, fulfilments of the oldest, strongest and most urgent wishes of mankind. But imagine if the Bible and this message of Jesus truly did give us this hope and at the same time was true. 
absolutely true and something we are wise to build our lives upon. When I was a teenager, I'd grown up in a Christian home, um, as we'd heard Reuben share today, and I had to decide, am I a Christian merely because my family are Christians, and I could have been grown, grown up in a Buddhist or Muslim or atheist home, in which case I might just give the inconvenient bits of Christianity a miss. Or is Jesus really the Son of God, proven to us by his resurrection from the dead? Put simply, I wanted to know, is this Jesus fact or fiction? And this is where the author of this letter we've been reading in recent weeks to Peter, the author, the Apostle Peter, would jump in and overwhelm Sigmund Freud. And he'd overwhelm our own reservations. By bringing you to church today, God wants Peter's certainty to be your certainty. That there is reason and there is a source of hope, well-founded hope. Well, how can we be certain that Jesus is the real deal? Peter gives us two reasons in this short text that Jack read for us. Read with me verse from verse 16 and we see witness one, the eyewitness testimony to the glorious Son. Peter says from verse 16, that we, that is myself and the other apostles, didn't invent this. We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honour and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him, on the sacred or holy mountain. Peter's saying, you've got to know something. This is no fabrication. As his life is coming to an end and the next generation of Christians who didn't see Jesus with their own eyes will be living on. Peter's saying, we didn't sit together in a a planning session, carefully concocting a fable that we would deceive the masses and, and for centuries to come, deceive them. We're not storytellers, he says. We're, verse 16, eyewitnesses. We're just saying what we saw. And God wants you to be sure that Jesus can be trusted as these false teachers come and who will deny Christ, as we see in chapter 2 of the letter. There is a clear divine stamp of approval on Jesus through years of signs and wonders. And the transfiguration in particular comes to Peter's mind, that day when Jesus was transformed. He says, verse 17, there was a voice from heaven in verse 18. And we ourselves heard this very voice. You can see him laboring in verse 18, the emphasis. We were with him on what I now call the holy mountain. I take it he's calling that hill or mountain a holy mountain or a sacred mountain there because he's thinking back of of Mount Sinai when God in all his awesome glory revealed himself to Israel. And then in Psalm 2 where It's prophesied a thousand years before Jesus comes that again he will come in glory and say, this is my son. So Peter's saying, try to imagine what it was like for us to be there that day. You can read about it in Matthew 17 or go back and listen to Mark 9 where we looked at this passage a couple of months ago. That there were three of us there with Jesus, James, John and myself, Peter. Then all of a sudden Jesus' form is transfigured. It's not a word we use very much in English, but you don't have reason to use this word very much. He was, his appearance completely changed. 
And the apostles, the disciples thought, what's going on with our friend Jesus? His face was shining, not just like the nice shine you get from a suntan, but more like the sun itself. His clothes became white as light. And then Moses and Elijah were there talking with Jesus. It appears that after departing this world, we continue to live. That God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And look what comes out in verse 17. He, Jesus, received honour and glory from the God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory. You can hear the, again the strain of his language, the gloriousness of this scene, saying, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. So on that day, God was declaring to the world that this person in front of you, this Jesus of Nazareth, is my son meant for the world and for its salvation. Listen to him. And Peter says he could stand no longer. We read that he fell to the ground terrified, absolutely overwhelmed by what he saw in front of him. Peter and the other disciples weren't quick to believe. They were slow to believe. But they just had evidence after evidence shown to them. And Peter found it, we see here in his letter, at the end of his life, he found it unforgettable. He's still talking about it. When I was a pastor uh, up near Armadale, I would visit a nursing home each week and I became good friends with an old man called Ron. I've mentioned Ron a few times because he, he impacted my life as we shared some years together. Ron's dad had survived World War I. I think he got shot in the foot and survived it. Ron got shot in the foot World War II and survived it. And one day Ron was asked to go and share with the little kids at the local school, just tell them about old Australia, Ron. Tell them what it was like for you growing up. Ron said, when I was five or six, my mum and dad gave me some chickens to look after. And um, it was my job to just take care of them, make sure they're okay and, and experience what it is to be farming. I love those chickens, he said. The hens had these cute little chicks uh, and they would run around looking for worms. And they'd scratch around and I thought, where can I get some good worms? And I saw a rock over there and I, so I went and I picked up the rock. And sure enough, there was better soil under there and, and the chicks were scratching around and digging. Problem was, he said, that rock was probably a bit big for me and so I picked it up and after a while, my legs started shaking and my arms were struggling and I couldn't move and the only thing I could do was to drop the rock right down onto my precious little chicks. And the little kids are just looking up in horror as Ron tells this story, devastated. The thing was I noticed that Ron almost 90 years after this happened, had tears in his eyes, kind of laughing about it, but the emotions were still there. It had changed Peter's life when just 30 years later he recalls what he saw that day and he never forgot. When I was teaching New Testament in a, in a Bible college, I would say 30 years isn't that long between the events and writing a letter like this. Ron had a 90-year gap. These disciples were recording things just 30 years later, 40 years later, but things that had changed their lives, some of them 20 years later. Peter's saying, he said in verse 12, I know you're established in the truth, but don't listen to those who doubt or dismiss Jesus, who call Jesus' power and coming just a myth as time goes on. Whatever anyone else might tell you about Jesus myth, irrelevant, whatever. I'm telling you what we saw, verse 16. 
I'm telling you what we ourselves heard. And the words that come out of Peter's mouth or from his pen, majesty, honour, glory from the majestic glory himself. Peter's saying God is a certainty. Jesus is truly God who has come to his world to know us, to forgive us and to give true hope and true meaning. And so if you come to Jesus, you know what life is about. But if you don't know Jesus, the key to reality, you will live with this painful hole and seek to fill that hole with all the wrong things, always looking, never finding, hungry but never satisfied. And the Bible will say that a godless life is a life not really lived. The God who made us made us for himself, and that's where life is found. Peter's saying to us, let my memory be yours. You didn't see firsthand, so let what I saw shape your conviction as well. The Son of God's goodness and power is no myth. But Peter says, secondly, there's another reason. While my testimony and the testimony of many is trustworthy, your confidence need not rest on the things that I say or even what others say. God has given the world even greater reason for confidence. And so the second witness he points to is the Scriptures, the made more sure Old Testament in verses 19 to 21. Look with me at verse 19. He writes, And we have the word of the prophets made more certain, and you will do well to pay attention to it. It's a great understatement. As to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Verse 19 there more literally is, and we have the made more sure prophetic word. It's an adjective. And so the truth of the scriptures, Peter's saying, have been further validated, vindicated, proven true, because the very Christ that has been predicted by all of those sources in great detail and with much repetition has now come. Now, most of us realize the Old Testament prepares us to understand the New Testament, but fewer realize, perhaps, the other good news. And here's Peter's point, that these Christ events that Peter has declared with many other apostles and many other eyewitnesses, these things are giving a huge tick back in the other direction to the Old Testament, that ancient uh, Israel's scriptures, the scriptures they were convinced were the word of God, proved to be absolutely right. Those old scriptures were right, Peter's saying, that the Bible is self-authenticating. It shows itself to be true to those who earnestly inquire. It's like the, the, those special keys you see in the war movies to launch a nuclear weapon. You can't just press a button to launch a nuclear weapon. You need two special keys and they need to be held by the right people and turned at the same time. Both are essential for a valid launch. And so we have the Old Testament scriptures aligning with the events taking place for God giving reasoning creatures a reason to believe him. Or to test my identity when I went through the airport at Singapore a few years ago, I have to bring a a passport that was pre-produced that matches my face in the present in front of a camera and then I give thumbprints on my way in and they have to match my thumbprints on the way out. And these layers of evidence some historical, some present, give the authorities enough reason to say, we confirm that this is David Burge, this is him. And so Peter's saying, 
Not only is our message based, one, on incredible events that have taken place, these in themselves convince many that Jesus is Lord, but these very works also repeatedly and supernaturally and otherwise inexplicably were predicted centuries ahead of time, all of it. And so I take it the Bible's an international bestseller and remains so because it keeps changing lives as people take this message to heart that it is the real deal, not only in theory, but in lived practice and experience and testimony. Scientists pursue messages from other life forms. Well, here our creator is communicating with mankind. It's a massive claim Christians make of the Bible and of Jesus himself, a huge message, a good message. Promise and fulfillment, promise and fulfillment, promise and fulfillment, all pointing to the life death and resurrection of Jesus, which was then announced by many eyewitnesses. It's all designed to ring beautifully true. But God has made this story self-authenticating very deliberately. And so as we might expect from God, truth and beauty and goodness are all working together in overwhelming proportions, inspiring artists and music and those doing great things around the world in the last 2,000 years. No historian could deny that books like Isaiah were written centuries before Christ came. And so we might, love, uh, we might lovingly ask those who dismiss Christ as a myth, and what I'm saying is nonsense, is, well, how do you explain those prophecies that are coming hundreds of years before Christ? What do you mean? Well, if Christ isn't the Messiah of God... What am, I, what am I to make of all these prophecies? Were these prophets just amazingly lucky guesses when they said Jesus would be born in Bethlehem, escape to Egypt, but also be one as described as coming from Galilee? A lot of Jesus' contemporaries rejected Jesus because they believed the Messiah was coming from Bethlehem. They just didn't realise that Jesus was born in Bethlehem at the time. Or was it just a flute that they predicted Christ's ancestry? Were they mad and yet proven right in their madness when they predicted a virgin birth? Were the prophecies about his miracles, his power, his humility, his teaching and healing all an amazing guess? That Jesus would be both divine in power and yet fully man, a crazy premonition that turned out to be true hundreds of years later. That the way the Christ would even die, an amazing guess written 6, 700 BC, that he would be pierced for our transgressions and yet would be without a broken bone as one cursed upon a tree. A crazy guess that Jesus would not see decay but raised from life, that God's people would be visibly filled en masse with the Holy Spirit, a lucky guess, that the gospel news of Jesus being this Jesus of Nazareth, a nobody, and yet being embraced by people all over the world, in the centuries to come, a lucky guess. You see, it's one thing to write all of these crazy predictions, but it's another thing to see them come together before your very eyes, in Peter's case, and see God actually pull them all off in the one person. It surprised Peter as much as anybody. But friends, this book has God's fingerprints all over it. He's made it to be his work indisputably. And so the very best news you will ever hear also happens to be absolutely true. 
If any person here on earth wants to be sure, wants to know if God is real, he need, need look no further than a Bible translated for us in God's kindness into countless languages. Every hotel I've been in around the world or every country I've been in has one in the drawer. We now find it on our phones and, and internet. And so, verse 19, Peter says, We have the word of the prophets made more certain, and you will do well to pay attention to it. I just love how Scripture's good news is carved into history for all the world to behold. If they really want to know God, he's there and he's very accessible. And just as the Old Testament says, your word is a light unto my feet, a lamp unto my feet. The hundreds of prophecies, Peter says, verse 19, are like a light shining in a dark place, offering their glimpses of Jesus, little smatterings of light. But now that day Jesus came, it, the light knocks Peter off his feet like the day dawning. It's a tricky verse, that one. It says, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. I take it it's referring to the way Jesus' testimony has now filled people's hearts and the Holy Spirit as well, uh, testifies to the light of Jesus. And where there is a little bit of light in the Old Testament, there's lots more light now. And coming is the day when there will be full light as we live in the day of his presence. Take a breath. And so I ask brothers and sisters, are you confident as Christians when you face the world with your faith? I was listening to this song on the radio, I believe, I believe, I believe, all the things, but what's the basis for the belief? You can be confident when you face the world with your faith. God would have you this morning develop a deeper confidence, a Peter-like confidence when you talk with your nephews and nieces, your children, your workmates, your friends. And while the world might tragically assume Christian faith is wishful thinking, not understanding the witness God has left, Peter is crying out today saying, your confidence in the Lord Jesus is not based on a myth. Your confidence that Jesus is Lord is rational. It's historically grounded. It's not too good to be true. Rather, it's too good to be untrue. For who else could construct a work written by over 40 authors over 1,400 years and yet have the one consistent testimony? Don't all religions have similar grounds for belief? They don't. They don't even claim to have this, let alone achieve it. And so as a result of this, we must conclude with Peter in verse 20. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. No, for prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter's saying, in light of all of this fulfillment, isn't it now obvious that those prophets weren't making stuff up on their own? That this is no man-made religion, but this must be, verse 21 in his words, from God. And when you think about it, if there is a God out there, is it at all surprising this God is able to show himself to reasoning creatures in a reasoning way, a reasonable way. Can our creator not intervene and save us from ourselves? Many blame God for the problems in the world. Well, here he is. 
and he says, this is my son to save us from the world. Listen to him. When we had uh, young children, we were living in Mongolia and we'd often visit the zoo in Beijing. Or not often, we'd visit there a couple of times. Next to our children, the lions looked enormous. Uh, Their heads are huge and their feet are enormous. I love seeing the lions, but I'm always glad there's a cage or a thick piece of glass between me and my kids and them. Spurgeon compared the Bible with a lion like that. And he gets across the sentiment, defend the Bible, I'd sooner defend a lion. You don't defend the Bible, you open its cage and let it roar. Or to quote his words, the word of God can take care of itself and will do so if we preach it and cease defending it. See you that lion, O fool and Fools and slow of heart, open that door. Let the Lord of the forest come forth free. Who will dare to encounter him? What does he want with your guardian care? Let the pure gospel go forth in all its lion-like majesty, and it will soon clear its own way and ease itself of its adversaries. As I go on, I'm seeking more and more, whether it's in a cafe or a bus or a train, to just pull my Bible out when I'm reading it anyway and to be proud of this book, not ashamed of it, not embarrassed. See it like a lion with enormous teeth and, and pray for a conversation with people who might need some hope at the time. This Bible doesn't need me or the church to defend it. But BPC, the word of God in the Spirit's hands, will do its work as we do ours. Scripture calls souls out of their dark prison cells It cuts through human pride and invites hurting people into the relief of heaven. And today God is calling us to give the Jesus of Scripture the confidence he deserves. That the good news can leak and even begin to burst forth from our previously reluctant mouths. There is hope, we can say. There is hope, let me tell you about him. I know him by name. Well, let's pray. Our great God, we're saddened by the lostness of our nation. Our mental health issues are not new to the world. The world's history is a history of anguish and fear and nations conquering nations, families torn apart by external and internal forces. We sing it in our songs, we read of it in the old hymns, we read of it in the Psalms. And so we rejoice with your ancient testimony that the soul of every human was made for you. And we recognize that our souls will find no rest until they find their rest in you. We recognize the Lord Jesus understood this and said to a hurting world, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Thank you that your word has reached us. Forgive us, Lord, for the lack of conviction about what you say and develop in us the confidence in your word of an apostle. May we pay close attention to it. May we be sure of its origins. May we listen to your word as your word. And we pray in the name of your glorious, most pleasing Son.
Amen. Well, there's the siren to mark the end of the sermon.